I was now doing something that I had dreamed about and I was having fun and I did smile a lot. Why not? Why why cry? When the pressure's on, especially if you're an assistant director or producer or one of the leaders, they read you. And if you're down, they read that. But if you're smiling and you can talk to the crew, you can ask them a question, what are you doing? You get them involved and that's fun. You are listening to the Act One Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, James Duke. Just a reminder that if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a good review. My guest today is prolific film producer Howard Kazanjian. Howard has made films with some of the most important filmmakers of all time, such as Robert Wise, Billy Wilder, Paul Newman, Sam Peckinpah, Clint Eastwood, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg and Alfred Hitchcock, just to name a few. Are you a fan of classic films such as Cool Hand Luke, The Wild Bunch, Raiders of the Lost Ark, or Return of the Jedi? (laughs) Yeah, me too. And Howard worked on all of them. Recently, a new biography was released that chronicles Howard's illustrious film career titled Howard Kazanjian, A Producer's Life, written by J.W. Rinsler. The book is a fascinating look into Howard's 50-year career as a filmmaker. I had a great time talking to Howard about the book and his life in the movies. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Howard, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you on the Act One podcast. Thank you. Thank you, James. I've I've always enjoyed uh, my conversations with you, but uh, I want to make sure that we spend the bulk of our conversation today talking about this brand new book that came out this year recently, um, uh, which is your biography. And I think everybody, I think the book is too big to probably be a stocking stuffer when you say Howard, <laughs> but, but, but it would be a great Christmas gift. I think for anybody in your family that, um, is a fan of any of Howard's films or obviously just interested in the movie business in general, or, and even the history of film, cause there's a lot of wonderful anecdotes and stories. In this book, it's called Howard Kazanjian, A Producer's Life, and uh, written by J.W. Rensler. And uh, it's just a it's a it's a great book. So first of all, congratulations on uh, your biography. Thank you. I want to just kind of start, you know, kind of go back a little bit to the beginning, Howard. Um, uh, we were just kind of touching bases on this. Uh, you talk about this in the book. Um, you have this unique um place in in uh in the motion picture history if you will in that when the dga um created their first kind of trainee program you actually have the letter which is kind of fun in the book you had heard right like you at the time you were at usc um you were either just graduated or you were still there and you had gotten wind right Uh, there was going to be this brand new kind of uh director's guild training program is that right that's correct. Yes, I was. I was had graduated, and I was doing graduate work at the time I received the letter. And you, so you reached out because you'd gotten wind, and their response was, "Hold on, kid, not yet, right?" <laughs> exactly. We'll get back to you. And so you, but you eventually were in this inaug- inaugural uh, DGA training. Um, program. And it was you and it was about what you and about 10 others, 11 others. There were 10 others, including Walter Hill, 
who uh, became a fine writer director. Yes, love Walter Hill. Oh my goodness! So, um, so you were about what age uh, when you started the pro- the DGA training program? Twenty two, twenty three. Okay. Oh, or twenty two or twenty three when I got into the director's guild. Uh, we we started the program. Um, uh, I think uh, I was nineteen or twenty. Okay, so yeah, so you were fairly, you were still a young pup. Um, I was. I couldn't finish graduate school. Right, because you jumped right think? away. Yes, yeah. I remember you said in the book you dropped it. So here you are. You find yourself now with this amazing opportunity. You had gone to, you know, you obviously you'd gone to film school. You had interacted. USC had afforded you this wonderful opportunity to interact with these filmmakers you talk about in your book, um, coming to speak the, the, um, kind of the fraternal order that you guys started there for filmmakers. Now here's your chance to be on these like real life movie sets. And you're going to have a chance to work with these guys. What was going through your head at the time? Like, were you, were you, were you just, were your eyes just full of stars? Were you overwhelmed or did you really kind of have a sense of uh, you know, almost like a workman's attitude of, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to go to work. I'm going to put my, my, you know, my hard hat on and I'm just going to go to work and figure this stuff out. Or, or was it a little bit of a, a mixture of just kind of that excitement that you sometimes get when you're around stars and celebrities and things like that? Well, I don't think the excitement has ever been around stars. The excitement <laughs> has been around movie makers, filmmakers, locations, exotic sets, period pictures. I, I'd rather do a period picture any day than a, a picture that takes place today where you take a truck and a camera and you go out to Wilshire Boulevard and you shoot a stoplight. That's easy. <laughs> the challenge, especially in a Western, is to create something, whether it's Camelot, whether it's Indiana Jones, or whether it's something in the future. That's the challenge. But when I first got into the business, yes, we had a, a, a decent and a very good background at USC, but it was nothing like the real world. Was there a sense of, you know, because obviously in class there's theory, you're being, you had, you talk about some of the great professors that you had, um, but really being on a set, it's just a whole nother experience, isn't it? A film it's set totally is just unlike anything else. You open your eyes, you open your ears, at least that's what I did. I wanted to learn. I wanted to know every aspect of the film industry. I wanted to know what a prop man did. I wanted to know what the grip did. I wanted to see the grip department. I wanted to see at, at Warner Brothers where they repaired the, the lights. I, and, and that was very important for me and, and it helped me a great deal. I wanted to be able to talk intelligently to the crew. One of the eye-openers were that everybody seemed to be 30 or 40 years or 50 years older than I was when I first started working in the business. Yeah, I remember you talking about that in the, or, or being discussed in the book. Like A lot of you guys that were kind of coming out and starting, there was this huge gap between those who had been working at the time, these huge 30, 40, 50-year gaps between you and some of the other crew, which um, I mean, obviously had to have its own unique challenges just in terms of relating to people who are twice your age. They have, they have kids and grandkids your age, you know. We well, um, gain their respect and you also have to respect them. But one of the challenges in the production side of it 
was that some of the old older timers were very envious of the young yeah. and felt that they would be taking their jobs. That's opposite of me. I always felt if somebody was smart enough to take my job, I should move on to the next position. Yeah. And yeah. that was my attitude. That is my attitude today. Well, I think it comes across in the book. That, that's one of the things I wanted to, 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 to talk to you about is um, you, you have a, this tremendous, what comes across in this biography is this tremendous work ethic you have. So there's two things that I think are working here. One is you have this tremendous work ethic, but you also have what so many other of your coworkers described as this joy, like this sense of joyfulness and playfulness and happiness that you exuded when you were on set. And I'm just curious if you could, you know, Talk about those two things. Where do you think your sense of work ethic and joy in terms of how you went about carrying yourself, where, where did that come from? Well, um, I think it started with my parents, the way they trained me as far as work ethics. And um, I never forgot that. And, and I was now doing something that I had dreamed about. I had a goal. I reached that goal. Now I wanted to take the next step and the next step and the next step. And I was having fun. And I did smile a lot. Why not? Why, why cry? Why, when the pressure's on, especially if you're an assistant director or producer or one of the leaders, they read you. And if you're down, they read that. But if you're smiling and you're more or less having fun. You can't have games, but you can have fun. You can talk to the crew. You can ask them questions. What are you doing? How did you do this? Even if you know the answer, you get them involved. And that's fun. And that's a learning process for me. Yeah. And you clearly <laughs> um, had some amazing teachers who kind of helped you through that process. I so in the book, you obviously, um, the biographer kind of walks through so much of your um, career. And I think that one of the coolest films ever made was your first big film, and that is Cool Hand Luke. So this is a film that I have watched over and over again. And uh, you have some fascinating stories that you talk about. What, what are some, obviously, there, it's discussed in the book. What are some of your fonder memories about being, because you, uh, if I remember correctly from the book, you essentially functioned as a DGA trainee at, there at the beginning, you essentially kind of functioned at first as almost like a second AD. Would that be right? Would that be the right way to say that's, it? That's correct. That was yeah. my attitude. Yes. Yeah. So what, what are some of your fond memories from that set? Well, Cool Hand Luke was the first long distant location that I had been on. And it was in Stockton, California. The weather was difficult. It was hot. We had a huge crew. The fond memories are the crew. And, and they had a lot of fun between scenes and between shots, especially somebody like Struth or Mark. I would load everybody on the bus in the morning. Some of the key crew actors would take cars, would be shuttled out to the set. But the last one on the bus every morning was Strother Martin. And it was him that would usually stand 
in the doorway of the bus, look down the aisle at the crew and give his famous line, even long before we photographed that. And I often thought, was he talking about me or was he just rehearsing the line? Because <laughs> I was putting pressure on him to be in that bus on time so we could leave. That's one of my favorites. He's rehearsing. He he was rehearsing the line over, over and over again. He to he to know for him to have known that that line would become one of the most famous lines in motion picture history. That's just uh, what we have here, is, and, and his delivery of that line. Yes. What we have here is a failure to communicate. Like I just the way he does it is just I just it's such a great. Um, obviously George Kennedy, and of course you know. Um, oh. Paul, Paul Newman. Um, at that time, Paul was he was he was right at the pinnacle of about to take off. Right. He was just like he was already a star, but his star was about to just explode with this film and Butch and Sundance and things like that. So what was it like working with Paul Newman? Paul Newman certainly was a gentleman. He was always on time. He was very good to the crew. Quiet. I think I think he was rehearsing his lines quietly in his brain the whole time while some of the other prisoners were joking and laughing and pushing each other around. Uh, Paul was prompt. Paul was a gentleman. I don't, I don't ever recall him flubbing a line or having to do it again. Uh, he had he had studied. He had he had rehearsed. He had gone back. East and he had met with prisoners and he learned his part. Paul was a professional and, and and really somebody you respected at the time and took your hat off to, but left alone. When you needed to speak with him, you could speak with him. Other than that, you stayed away. Well, as an assistant director, I always stay away from talent. I mean, some people hang around talent. I don't. There, there was a balance. There's a balance there, right? You have to try to figure out what what's, and for each talent, probably it's very different. That's part of your job, right? It's trying to figure out who who who's going to be maybe more jovial and who's you should just be more hands off with, right? Most of the time, through my entire career, I was able to knock on an actor's door and walk in. I <laughs> I never had to wait for some reason. <laughs> Or yes, come in. Who is it? And, and and I'll tell you, there were times where I'd knock on the door and walk in, and an actress was standing there nude. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> and, and and I got to tell you, your eyes just focused on her eyes. Yeah, nothing <laughs> else. <laughs> Keep your eyes up. Keep up. But they didn't care. Yeah. I mean, it was it's. Uh, it's one of the things I was able to do, and I don't know why or how I was able to get away with it. But I'm, but I, I just didn't have the time to knock on the door, knock on the door. Right. Some of them aren't going to say who is it anyway. Yeah. Just go in. You have something to do. Then you have to move on to the next thing. There's no <laughs> sitting around in our business. <laughs> That's right. You said that you said that I believe you said that that's one of the first things you learned from your um, I think it was your first AD mentor. Maybe I'm, I'm, I apologize. I read the book, but it all kind of 
You're right. Um, Hank Moonjean was one. His, his whole thing was, and, and it's funny because I've always taught this at, at Act One uh, with production, and I just loved having it here. You are, you know, this was being taught years ago. Like this is the way a first AD moves is you're never sitting. You never sit. No. And 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 why is that? I, I think by not sitting and standing, you're in control. And you're, 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 uh, I, do I sit? Rarely did I sit. If a director was sitting and called me over, there's a picture in the book of me and Hitchcock sitting. He, he wanted to talk to me. He wanted to review the script. He wanted to tell me what was next. So you're sitting next to them. But right after that, you get up and you, because you're moving around the crew, you're checking the crew, you're checking how long it's going to take to set up, a, uh, uh, to light the set. You have to be prepared to call the actors or change wardrobe or, or take a telephone call from a studio, something. You're, you just got to keep moving. You've got to keep thinking. And you keep moving fast. Yes. I've told many people, I, I can walk onto a set where, you know, there are new people or students working. And I can tell within the first 10 minutes which ones will make it in the business <laughs> in terms of how they move, right? Like, there's a lot of hurry, hurrying up to wait, yes, right? Like yeah. get it all ready to go. And then you got to, yeah. Um, you know, also at the time that I did most of my work, there was smoking on the set. And at that time, most of the people smoked with the exception of me. And, and that's body language to me. If you're standing over in a, not even in a corner, but standing near a, a light or a, a trailer or something like that smoking, boy, that tells me that, that guy's relaxing or not with it, or is not listening to somebody, the director, or, or not quite there. So I use body language a lot in the way I present myself and the way I watch people. Uh, you you talk about, or, or sorry, it was written about in the book um, about Cool Hand Luke. You you talked about how one of the things that you enjoyed was when you got a hold of the script and you read it and you were thinking about it, you, you found a lot of uh, Christian symbolism. Um, you said that you felt like you could connotate, connotate a Christ-like figure. Yes. And oh, uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I agree. I've always held up Cool Hand Luke as a, as a Christ figure, as a film to study. You know? But I'm curious that someone who actually worked on the film, who was reading the script early on, um, uh, what was it about the Cool Hand Luke story that you recognized that? From the script or when we were there? Well, from the script also, some of the dialogue. You know, he looks up and, and, he, and he, he refers to, in my opinion, God as, as his old man or as the old man. Yeah. Uh, when he was being fed the eggs, he's lying down on a table. Not that Christ lied down on a table, but he's yeah. in a position like Christ. And in a way, there's subtle story points about that character being a Christ-like person. Yeah, that's the way I saw it. I mean, you know, some people will tell you you're absolutely wrong, Howard. Hey, so I'm wrong, <laughs> <laughs> but I had fun thinking that way. It really, the film really does communicate him in that way. I'm reading this biography. And the way you carried yourself, just hearing the people who worked with you, 
um, you lived your faith out. Like it just like, um, uh, uh, Richard, the, you know, the Richard Harris stories that are, you know, um, this is a, someone who, I mean, it's well-documented what he struggled with. Um, you, the book talks about in length about kind of how you earned his kind of respect, if you will, because you kind of helped take care of him. You kind of made sure that between you and the driver and, you know, so it was like, you guys wanted him to be okay. And, and he uh, appreciated that and valued that. And sometimes just, just that kind of ministry of presence. That's what I, that's what, that's what came away a lot of, from a lot of the book. That's true. That's the way I was, I grew up. That's the way my parents trained me, if so to speak. And I, I believe, I mean, we're all brothers and sisters, or maybe it's another terminology nowadays. Yeah. But uh, uh, why not? It's a lot easier that way to help than to fight. Yeah, to treat people with dignity and respect, and and um, and it comes back to you. You tell this great story. So I, I want to move on to this other phenomenal film that you were a part of, which was The Wild Bunch. I'm a huge Western fan, and of course, Peck and Paw is 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 one of our best. Uh, Western filmmakers and the wild bunch is, is, uh, is this seminal film. And you were a part of this, what seemed like a crazy production. And even in this, you tell this wonderful story of, of um, Peck and Pa had a tendency to chew people out and yell at people. And you tell the story of, he just decided to take it out on you one day and you had had enough. And you went and you told the producer, right. I'm, we can't, we can't, and the producer was someone who wasn't always there. You were always there. The producer wasn't always on set, as, as described in the book. Rarely on set. Rarely on set. And I can't remember his name. I apologize. What was the name? Do you remember? What was the name Bill, of that? Bill Feldman. Yeah. And so Feldman, you went to him and said, hey, he can't talk to me and the other. He's got to knock this off. And, and, and you said it did. Things got better because you stood up for you and the other people in the crew to say, hey, I know you're Sam Peckinpah, but let's not treat each other this way. And I and I think that, that that's there's a lot to be said there for 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 a young guy like you to be able to stand up. And and you talk about like you think Peckinpah admired that. Yeah, in hindsight, you're right. Uh, he he did, he did. And and after that, if there was any yelling, it was <laughs> it was usually not so much yelling, but it was directed toward me, uh, <laughs> not the crew, occasionally a cast member, <laughs> but usually to me. And I could take it because I think I knew the answer. I mean, there was no answer, but you'd say, yes, Sam, coming in. Yes, I'll do it. I'll do the impossible. I love that, by the way. I That's one of the things that I admire about it is the book is so practical for people who are interested in producing film and working on film. There's so many great just gems of wisdom. And one of them is what you just said right there. You talk about, you learned with Sam Peckinpah, the response is always coming in, Sam. You, you would have to find a way to anticipate his needs and know that if he told you that, you know, you tell the one story about the goats <laughs> and, he, and you say, are you sure you only want white goats? Yes, of course I only want white goats. And then of course the day of production he wants white goats and black goats, but you knew that. And so you had some black goats standing by. Um, 
can you talk a little bit about the the production of of um of um of that film and just the wild bunch and just just your peck and paul was a you know he was a difficult kind of figure he he also was a bit of a heavy drinker and other things like that just kind of talk about some of the things that you uh took take away when you think back on uh, on that set uh where were because it seems like that was a seminal set for you personally in terms of what you learned the job itself when i read the book it seems like you kind of come away going I'm this is a movie I made like I really contributed to the creation of this film well you don't contribute to the early part of it yes you get involved in breaking the script down and the physical production of it creatively no because the script was there and it didn't basically didn't change and you're not going to go to Sam with who you don't even know yet and tell him something's not working or you don't understand but it was also my first foreign location and that, you know you're you're in in a country where fortunately i knew a little bit of spanish but you're in a country where you're dealing with people that you normally don't deal with uh yes you had an american mostly an american crew that kept getting fired 70 percent of the crew was fired so you always have new people and with that on your shoulders, you're hoping you're not the next person. And so you're working very, very hard. You're thinking ahead. You're not saying I'm going home, but there, but there are times where you say, what am I doing down here? And you went through, you, you talk about that in the book. It talks about you, you were one of the few people that survived from day one of production till, till the end. So many people, you you yourself you went through four so you were you were functioning as second AD and you essentially went through four or five first ADs like yeah, how does that even ha- like how does that how like I hear that and I think how did that movie even work like how does that work? you know well the first first who was extremely capable and a wonderful person was fired the Sunday before the first day Monday's shoot. And if you recall the picture, it was the opening of the bank robbery. And with all of that happening, and there was no first. So who was doing the job? Of, of the, who was doing the job of the first and the second with all those extras, with the horses, with the buggies, with the crew, with the marching band? Who was teaching, who was teaching the Mexican talent? how to sing the words in English <laughs> in English while you're trying to set up everything else. But that's the fun. That's the challenge. That's what you learn to do. I, you know, it was great. I would not trade that with anyone. It, it It's tough. Yes. But then, then Cliff Coleman came down and after a while, another first assistant, you know, we always had, a Mexican first and second, and they were really the translators. And the second Mexican dealt with the Mexican army most of the time because we had 50 Mexican, real Mexican army people with horses. With horses, yes, yes. To do the background or whatever we needed. They both eventually, towards the very end, left the picture. Uh, I needed help, so they sent down another second. He was thrown out. 
<laughs> he was fired. And the third first was almost, well, he was set aside while another first came down. Yeah. And, why? And why? Was, why do you think the what, what was, was the... fired and the gaffer was fired and 70% of the crew were fired? Was it just was it just that Peck and Paul was that temperamental? Like, what do you think? I mean, because I mean, talk about trial by fire in terms of you learning with all that going on. Was it just that difficult of a I'm just curious, what 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 do you think was the reason for such a high turnover? I think a lot of people didn't like the job. I didn't think I think they were tired of being in Mexico. Um we didn't break for lunch on time. Sometimes we'd go an hour or two hours into meal penalty. The meal penalties were not being reported. They were upset about that. They claimed that they weren't being paid overtime and certain things like that. Um, and, and I think it was just Peck and Paw's reputation of having dismissed so many people on prior movies. I never saw Peck and Paw say to somebody, you've done wrong, you're fired. It was always the production manager that I, I rarely if ever came out to the set would, would do the firing. Uh, in the book, I, I recall about, we were on the bus in the morning, ready to leave, and Bill Farella, who was the production person, was walking by, looking up, at all at the at us in the windows through the windows and the gaffer said well i wonder who's getting fired today and by golly by golly somebody did him the stillman got fired because there was a huge sandstorm and he put his cameras away his still cameras away can you imagine what happens when you have mm -hmm. sand in a camera mm -hmm. you got fired man the, the, in the book, there's one guy that got fired that they couldn't dismiss, and that was the makeup man. The, the makeup guy, because he had all the <laughs> mustaches. Right? The mustaches <laughs> and chops, and he folded his box, and he said goodbye. And they said, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> Those are the fun moments. Those are the things you think about. Now, what did he do wrong? I don't know, but he was a heavy drinker, too. Yeah. You know, his previous Western did not do well, and there were problems, and there were overages. And he, he was fighting for his life, I think. Now, separately, again, in the book, I met him uh, when he was editing the film in the United States. He did a lot down in Mexico, then he brought it back. And he was a different person. He was a wonderful person. He gave me a hug. He thanked me. But I've heard that about other directors. I've heard that about, I think, Henry Hathaway and, 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 and some others that were one type of person on the set and another one off the set. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know what his challenge was, but there was a challenge there. You, you, you were, a, yeah. It seems like oftentimes, at least as I read the book, you were a little bit of the director whisperer. <laughs> you you seemed like you did have the ability. Um, um, I mean, you did have a little bit of an issue, obviously, with, with Robert Wise and, and some other stuff. I mean, by the way, just the list of just the list of filmmakers that you work with is just so impressive. I just I just 
as I'm going through the book, I'm like, what? He worked with them and he worked with them. You know, like it's just so uh, it's just so fun to kind of uh, read through all those things. Uh, you, you you talk a little bit about your relationship with Ben Johnson. And he was, almost, you know, you said you didn't need a father figure, but he was very fatherly. He was very jovial with you. Uh, you guys would. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about that cast, that amazing cast and the relationship you have with them? Well, Ben was unique. Ben, uh, I, I say a father figure, and I had a father figure at home. Ben uh, would talk to you about other things, like he was a rancher, where he had come from. And Howard, you're young, and you should think about a side business. And he was, you know, Ben explained that he did, besides being a busy actor, he had a rice farm. And Howard, you know, the future is this, and it could go that way. And 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 I had never, I never had conversations with an actor, let alone a crew member, about things away, about life about treating people good. And Ben was that type of guy. He was a gentleman and you could see it and he'd talk about it. And he'd instill that in me. And maybe because he knew I listened, <laughs> but, but he, 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 was a, he was great. He was one. There were a lot of great people. Here you are having to function as the first AD and the second AD for this, for this massive scene with all these different things going on. For those who maybe are the, a little bit of the uninitiated of, of what an actual first AD or second AD does on a set, can you describe like basically essentially what, what your role was, um, you know, with that scene um, you're, you're having to work with uh, the extras you're having to work with the um, stunt department. Can you can you just describe all the kind of different roles that that you would have had as a first or second on a on a film set? Well, prior to that, in pre production or even the night before, when you're preparing a, a call sheet, you know you're laying out the day's work, the location, the number of horses, the number of extras, how they're dressed, what they're going to do. Is it a bank robbery? Do you have guns? Are you you know, are, do you, how many squibs do you have? Where, where are the good guys? Where are the bad guys? Do you have, what kind of stunts do you have? Do you have a medic on the set? Have you rehearsed that stunt the day before? All of those things you think about the day ahead of time or two days or a month ahead of time. And so when, when you start that morning, you have, to, you have to know where the camera's going. Usually you do, or the cameras in that case, many cameras. And now you start to set your background, working with the director, working with the DP, working with the prop man. You know, I, I, I don't want to talk too much about it, but guns are an issue. Weapons are an issue. Those weapons have to be locked up by the prop man. On the Wild Bunch, it was a prop man who had the key to his box, and you take out those weapons, he takes out those weapons, and he hands them to the actors, and most of the time there was nothing in them. But if they go to shoot it, it becomes a blank. Is it a full load or a half load? Well, Sam usually wanted a full load, and there were, <laughs> there were times in pre-production when Sam would say, this is the way it sounds, and he'd shoot off a real gun. 
<laughs> that he would have? He, he'd have a gun or he would go pick no, up? No, not one? with him. He did. Oh, okay. He asked for it ahead of time for some reason. None of us knew. And he chewed off, as an example in the book, when we were uh, a week before when the key people were reading their lines and Sam was, you know, working with them and we were figuring out the final wardrobe and which actor does Bill Holden have this size horse or that size horse and this is the best hat for him and this is the best gun for him. These are all the things you, if you're fortunate as an assistant director, you're there witnessing. Yeah. And, and when, when we were called out to this corral to see these squibs work, I had never seen a squib in my life. And most you, of, most of the actors hadn't seen a squib. You talk about in the book, is this true? So you, in the book, you talk about how, um, he wanted um, projectile from the squib. He wanted, he wanted, to, you know, the blood or whatever. And you guys went out and did several days of tests. He wasn't happy. He wanted more. He asked for gunpowder to be put into it and all that kind of stuff, so they would feel it. Um, was that the first time squibs had been used that way? Was that you guys, or had it been used that way? You just you guys hadn't. You had not done it personally. I had never seen it, and most of those actors had not seen it. Wow. Had it been used how many times? I don't know. Obviously, it had been used somewhere because they existed. No, but they. But that was so, that was a fascinating part of the book where you were talking about him. He wanted the at first they would the squib would go off and the actors didn't know, and so he wanted to, them to feel it right. So they had to put some gunpowder in it. And- yeah, and some of them got burned a little bit from that powder <laughs> because because now when you shoot. And the special effects man is watching the gun go off and pushing the button for the squib to explode. The actor does, because he's, he's acting, doesn't necessarily feel it. So what do you do? Sam says, put a skin, a, a squib on his skin as well. <laughs> well, that burned a lot of the guys. So the squib would break the material and shoot out the blood or shoot out the blood and meat which usually was a sponge material and it would hit the guy in the chest or leg or wherever it was and oftentimes burn him sam didn't care well you uh, you know i wonder if we could stop for a second here and talk a little bit about this because obviously with your career starting in the um in the late 60s or so you've been a part of this um, transition that we've experienced in our industry uh, with a lot of safety precautions and safety protocols and things that have, you know, the unions have stipulated and asked for and stuff. And, and so it's like, I mean, back then, yeah, things were probably a little bit more willy nilly than they are today. Right. Yes. A little bit, <laughs> a little bit more. I, I think it depends on the crew you're working with, with the studio you're working with. Uh, Independents are a little looser back then and 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 so a lot of the stipulations that have come since are are all valid they all you know that's one thing i always look at and they go look if this rule was put in it probably was put in because it had to be put in at some point because someone was doing something that caused it you know oh yeah Um, i i I point out uh, on one film i was on a 20-foot ladder at the top of a 20-foot ladder and (laughs) osha happened to walk in because there was another problem and they said, no, you have to go down three feet. And then they looked around and there was a parallel with a 10K on it. 
lighting part of the set. And they said, uh, well, there has to be not only a bar at the top, there has to be a bar in the a protective bar in the middle. And also where your feet go, there has to be a piece of wood so your foot won't slide out. That was all new. It all wow. happened on the set that I was the assistant director on. <laughs> and, and it became a universal thing throughout our industry. Mm-hmm. So you see those things. Given the kind of recent tragedy that's, I don't know when people will, will listen to this, but obviously that there was a tragedy that happened a, a month or so ago on an independent film set where um, the DP was shot and killed on accident um, by Alec Baldwin, who was, they were, I guess they were doing a camera test or or a camera rehearsal or something, and, and this gun went off and it had a live round in it. When you hear stories like that, um, Howard, given all your your vast experience as a as an AD and as a producer, when you hear stories like that, what, what's the first thing that you think of? Somebody didn't do something, and and uh, obviously it was a very sad, terrible thing that happened. Um, things in the industry will have to, will change because of that, like it did with the latter situation in me and the parallel and all. Uh, but but also after thinking about it again. It was a low-budget film. Now, I don't know the answer, but it was a low-budget film. They were pressed for time. They were hurrying, probably taking chances. And in the past, on some productions, to set a squib in a wall, let's say a wall, because an actor is going to shoot and it's going to chip the wall or it's going to hit the doorway takes time you have to hide those wires and then you have to synchronize it and you have to shoot it off and what happens when that doesn't work and you need take two you've got to fix the wall you've got to fix the door whatever it is in the past i have seen and i have heard to save time you take a real gun and you shoot a real bullet into the wall. That's easy. No one's around and all of that. Also, and and again, I wasn't there. I did see a picture, a still picture. Usually if you have guns shooting towards camera, you have a very large plastic or, or, or plywood, and you just have a little hole for the lens of the camera. And you clear the crew except for the operator or maybe the director, but most of the time now the director's looking at a video monitor. But you'd have the DP and the camera operator, or maybe not even the DP. You clear the set. So that's what I think may have happened, that they may have used this gun, and rumors are that they were target practicing between takes or earlier on. This gun may have been used to actually shoot a, a, a bullet. Yeah into the set for whatever reason to save time. And then it was used as, as, a, as, as a wrong weapon. I don't know that. That's my thinking. Yeah. I, that is probably about what we'll hear. Down well, that's a really, that's a really interesting take. I didn't, I've never actually heard the thing of you. Cause you know, I, I've heard from several 
working ADs today talk about how, like, you know, why is there any live round? You know, what, why in the world would there even be a live round on seven? Never should be. Absolutely. Yeah. It, make was any sense. it was wrong. It was wrong. It was never should have been. I will tell you on the wild bunch, there was one shot we made where they, they needed to break some glass, a window, and they used the shotgun. But I got to tell you, no one was around and they used a shotgun. Yeah. So I want to spend some time talking to you about my favorite filmmaker. I know everybody um, who's going to probably tune into this podcast, they're going to be like, oh, I can't wait to hear his George Lucas, uh, George Lucas, his George Lucas, Steven Spielberg stories. And we'll get to a few of those later. But I want to talk about Alfred Hitchcock. So you I, you have what I think you describe what's described in the book is a very unique relationship with who I think is the is the greatest uh, filmmaker in Alfred Hitchcock. So you worked with Hitch on Family Plot, and it's a fascinating story and uh, takes up a, a lot of the book. You, you had uh, done a lot at this point in your career, and you get the call that Hitchcock is looking for a first AD for his new project. What was it like for you? Because you were, you're, you're, you're a fan of film, right? You, you were a fan of film. What was it like for you to get a call that to go work with Alfred Hitchcock? Well, it was certainly one of the greatest events that ever happened in my career. You know, again, I, we, we had worked with Billy Wilder and, and right after that, Robert Wise. And, and I'll go back a moment. Robert Wise was the only director I ever wrote to when I was in college as a student. He and David Lean were my number one. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, there's always William Wyler and so many great, great, great directors, John Ford, too. But those two really were somebody, those were two guys that I wanted to work with. Hitchcock was so far out there. You know, you, you couldn't even dream about him. So when it happened, it was a miracle. It was it was terrific. It was the pinnacle of my life. And and he was the only director that ever mentored me. I mean, he really like he really mentored you. Like it's described in the book. Like he spent so much time where you well, you kind of talk about it took you it took you a long time to actually meet him. Right. Like they. You talked about like at that point he was older, he was uh, more frail than he had been in the past, and his kind of team that had been around him, his long-standing assistants, they really they really looked after him and protected him. And but uh, you tell that the story is told where you finally get up the courage to just bust in the room, right, to go <laughs> talk to him. <laughs> but yeah. then after that, you finally you finally connect with him. He's gracious with you. He says, "Yeah, let's let's talk." And then after that. You said it was like every day, every morning, you started this kind of relationship with him. But also being a bit frail, you know, when we take an airplane ride, and there were several of them because we were going to shoot in San Francisco area, you know, you held, you, you held his arm or he held your arm uh, going up and down stairs. You were there. Peggy Robertson was his right-hand person for dozens of years, but She's back in the office. She's not going to hold this guy's hand. But yes, every single morning in pre-production, when he came in, which was roughly nine o'clock, uh, we sat down 
And I always say, uh, we had coffee on fine china. I mean, paper cups, <laughs> fine, but, but he's English. <laughs> you know, and, and he, he would talk about what we were going to do, what's in the script. But he, he usually would say, Howard, do you remember? And he'd pick a scene in one of his pictures. And he'd ask about it. And sometimes I knew the answers, but you'd say, tell me, Mr. Hitchcock. And it was always Mr. Hitchcock, always Mr. Hitchcock, until the very end when he said, call me Hitch. Yeah, he sent you a he sent you a um, a letter, right? And it's in the book. And he said, call me Hitch. And he signed this letter um, thanking you for for uh, for something that you had done. And he signed it Hitch. That's a beautiful. That's so beautiful. But I couldn't call him Hitch. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a question of respect. Yeah. You know, yeah. I grew up in a time where it was Mister. Yeah. It yeah. was Reverend. It was Sir. Yeah. I. What do you? Um, so you talk at length about he, you would he you would sit in his personal theater and watch films and he would dissect films with you. He would ask you questions. It was like he was quizzing you, like a, like you were a a student. He would say. Howard, <laughs> um, you know, why did I choose to use put the camera there or, or something like that? And you would have to give your thoughts on it, um, uh, which in and of itself was it's, it was a master class. It must have been like it must have been be, being back at USC all over again and kind of learning. But um, out of everything that you out of everything that you kind of learned from from Hitchcock as a mentor. I want to get into the production in a little bit, but in just the, the overall, in terms of your relationship and as you look at him as a filmmaker, um, what do you what do you think was one or two of his greatest strengths? What was it that made him such a unique and interesting and wonderful filmmaker from your perspective? Well, he always felt that the script was most important. And once he had the script, everything else was easy. I think you've probably heard him say that, and he's been quoted many times. Uh, so the script was extremely important to him, and he wanted me to understand why the script was like it was. And then translating that to, or picking his cast, music was very important to him as well. And the execution, execution had to be executed correctly but it was all over for him. And that's why after being brainwashed so long by him, there were times where he'd leave the set early because there were, his wife was quite ill at the time and he'd go home and I'd finish directing the day's work. It wasn't my ideas directing the day's work. He was plugged into my brain. I was directing the way I had been taught by him the way I had been mentored by him. There was no creativeness coming out of me. It was him through me. Do you think he did that? Did he, have you heard from anyone if he did anything similar to anyone else? Um, no, but he, he certainly would let people go out and shoot plates or second yeah. unit. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I'd heard that as well. And, and that a lot, he, he would, he would hand, he would hand over his storyboards, right, to his his to a cinematographer, and 
shoot it. That's he would his director would shoot it the way. Sometimes he'd do his own storyboards. Rough. I wish I had kept them because he's because I didn't. Yeah. But he'd do his own. So he'd call me in, ask me to stand over his shoulder, and he <laughs> he would draw out what he wanted. So as an example, when we uh, got to uh, San Francisco, where we were shooting at Grace Theater, the exterior, before he arrived on the set, I had set the cameras. I know exactly. I mean, they we had we had drawn it out exactly to the pinpoint where those cameras were going to be and who was going to walk in and what the background may have been about and all of that and how they were dressed. They're, go- they're going to church. A lot like most people are dressed today going to church. <laughs> but, <laughs> but again, this is an Englishman who always wore a tie. And speaking of a tie, and I point that out in the book too, Henry Bumstead, who was the production designer, Lenny South, who was the DP, and I had to wear a coat and tie every single day, no matter where we were. You know, it's 110 degrees up on Angeles Crest Highway. The dust is blowing, and I'm wearing a tie. And I get home, and it's like taking a picture off the wall where you see the shape of the picture. I take my tie off, and you see the shape of the tie on my on my white shirt and i had to be careful on the colors that i wore <laughs> more conservative colors but you know we had fun he he talked to me about non-essential things to the movies he would say howard do you know i wear three different color suits <laughs> <laughs> and i'd say no and he'd say yes I wear black, I wear dark gray, and I wear dark blue. Well, they all look the same to me. And then he'd say, do you know how I match my coat with my pants? And he'd open up his coat, and over here there was a big number, 23 or something like that. And then in the lip of where his belt is, he'd roll that back, and you'd see 23. And that's how he mashed his clothes. I mean, that had nothing to do with what we're doing. But we had fun just talking to each other at times. He seemed to really, he comes across in everything I've ever, you know, so the way he's written about in this book, um, with you, to other books that I've read, and, 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 and obviously interviews uh, with him. Um, he comes across as a playful showman. Like he comes across as he loves a good story. He loves to entertain. And, um, and I, and I think you talk about it in the book, like someone or you, or or the author quotes, someone is saying, uh, Oh, I think it's William Devane saying he never told uh, a story twice. He, He was always telling new, you know, he had, he had a new story for everything and he would just regale the cast and crew, um, with these stories. You know, when you look back at um, your career and you look at being able to work with people like Robert Wise and, and Billy Wilder and Alfred Hitchcock, and do you think that out of everyone, do you feel like Hitchcock probably shaped, shaped your storytelling kind of philosophy maybe more than others? Or, or is there someone that would stand out even more than him in terms of really shaping you as a filmmaker? Hitchcock, without question. 
And from that point on, now when I look at a film, especially an old film, whether it be Billy Wilder or William Wellman or you know some, some of the great filmmakers of the past, I analyze them quite differently, mm. much differently. Not from certainly from story and then from direction. Mm. Do yeah. you, you, okay. It's not talked about in the book, but surely uh, your, you know, your contemporaries at the time, surely when they heard you were, was there like a little bit of jealousy from George Lucas and these guys, like you got to do what with uh, Hitchcock? Like, was there a, did you, did you hear from some of these guys about, um, a sense of like you you got to spend all this you got to watch pers- his personal film collection in his theater um well, i didn't talk a lot about I, I i'm one that is quiet and i don't brag so you didn't really you didn't really tell people about some of this stuff until until more recently That's oh i mean i would I, I documented it all yeah so i wouldn't forget it and you don't forget some of it yeah uh, Randall Kleiser was the one that from the beginning would say, Howard, you've worked with this guy and you've worked with Hitchcock and you've worked with that guy. You have to write a book. You have to write a book. And others would say the same thing. Um, Spielberg once said that he wanted to meet Hitchcock. And uh, I tried to set it up and we were busy and we didn't do it. Um, I met Hitchcock many times after um, I left him. When did he pass? Did he pass? Because he did After Family Plot. Did he do two more films after Family Plot? That was his last. He wanted to do one more. That's right. That's right. That's right. And basically Wasserman took it away from him. That's right. That's right. And I think that's what killed him. I say that in the book. I may be wrong. That's Howard Kazanjian's opinion. But I know when I'd go visit him and he'd tell me that he no longer can do a picture or they're not letting him do a picture. He was crestfallen. He felt terrible. He he never recovered from that, you don't think? I don't think so. I mean, this guy could do anything. He'd tell me that he could shoot the yellow pages as long as it was under X amount of dollars. He had total control, and he was a big stockholder, big stockholder in MCA. You talked to you even talk about how he would talk to his cameraman about the lens. So he, it's almost like he saw. He you kind of describe it. It's like he saw what the camera saw. He saw it. He didn't even have to look through it. He knew what the cam. He knew what that fifty millimeter or whatever that seventy millimeter. He knew what it was going to show, and was able to direct from that way. I only saw him look through the lens one time on the film, one time. I don't remember why um, Lenny South asked him to look through it, but he he would sit usually under the camera, not always, and he'd say, put on a 50. Or or I knew I'd tell him to put, or he'd tell me to put on a 50 or 75 or whatever. And then oftentimes he'd say, to the camera operator, you should be cutting through the second button in his shirt and the left side would cut through that doorway handle and the right side and leave two inches above his, his head. And you know what? He was absolutely correct. That is absolutely unbelievable. Correct. That is unbelievable. You, you, 
you tell this other story in the book of you found you found yourself directing Hitchcock's actors in front of Hitchcock on Hitchcock's set. And you you at one point you turn to him, you 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 it dawns on you what's happening, what you're doing, and you turn and look, and he kind of just gives you this nod of approval. Is was there a was there ever a sense when when you thought um hey after this i want to become a director like i've sat with the master he's mentored me i want to be um a i want to make be a full-time you know film and television director i wanted to be a director from the onset i always wanted to direct and then later on after that yes really wanted to direct i mean now was let's go find a project and and oftentimes i'd find the project that i wanted to produce but not direct or i wanted to direct and i wasn't given the opportunity by the entity the studio whoever it was to direct so no i've never directed a full film and uh you know i talk about it now with you but it doesn't bother me because maybe my path was set to produce. Maybe that's what I was born to do. Yeah. If I may be so bold as to remove that, maybe (laughs) because uh, you've done some amazing, uh, obviously producing as well. You talk in the book about you and this, um, this uh, young filmmaker named Francis Ford Coppola that you meet and you connect with, and you end up working with him on, a, um, uh, is it rainbows? Finney? Is it the uh, Finney's rainbow? Sorry. I knew I was, I knew I was saying it wrong. And so here you are, you find yourself working with this guy and you, your, your, your college buddy, this guy who uh, you had befriended at USC um he was younger than you, right? Uh, Lucas Lucas was younger than you. About a year um, and a half, two years, yes. Yeah. But you guys had connected there. Obviously, you were in part of the same film fraternity and everything. And um, you invited him to the set. And the story is told, right, that that uh, Coppola looks and says, who's that guy that you're, who's that kid over there who looks kind of similar to him with a big scruffy beard? Right? Yeah, the only two around with the, with the, with the beard. <laughs> and and here you are introducing these guys and you guys end up you, you, you are instrumental in forming that what, what becomes this very important American filmmaking company, American Zoetrope. Can you talk a little bit about those early days in terms of just your memories of that young Frank? Cause I'm a huge Coppola fan as well. That young Francis Ford Coppola being with him, working with him, watching how he works is uh, and then, and then also just this young George Lucas, and just how you guys were at that time period. You, you guys were all roughly the same age, um, all kind of breaking into the industry at the same time, but you all had kind of clearly different paths. And um, what was what was it like in the early days with those guys? Well, Francis, firstly, Francis was one that would change his mind quite often. We had a big cast. And so as an assistant director, I had to deal with, uh, I think there were 18 full cast members plus Petula Clark and Fred Astaire and and three or four other key players on the call sheet every day. So that call sheet would be prepared by me 
by nine o'clock, it had to be turned into the production office because not only did it give the times for makeup, et cetera, and wardrobe and what we were doing and where we were doing it, it had to list the crew. Do we have five electricians a day or seven electricians? I had to know how many we needed depending on where we were shooting on a set, in a big set, a little, et cetera. Well, by the end of the day, Basically, there many times are changes. And Francis could say, oh, Howard, I, I, I really want the, the, dance, the dancers, the 18 of them, uh, first thing in the morning. Let's, let's not use them in the afternoon. Well, Francis, they haven't rehearsed, finished rehearsing that scene. Or I know I have to have them. Well, now you have 18 people. It's eight o'clock at night. Who's going to make the telephone calls and find these people and give them a change th that you're no longer in a tan, you're, you're, you're in a 6.30 in the morning. So I, I realized that I have to go to his office and just kind of sit there and hear of his changes. Oh, we need a Titan crane. Well, when George Lucas came along, the, three, the two of us would go sit with Francis. And a lot of it was I, here. I'm trying to get information out of production information <laughs> out of Francis, which usually you did. But it was it was about Hollywood. It was about filmmaking. It was about George Lucas and anti Hollywood and controls and we don't like the studio and all of so so it wasn't all related to Finian's Rainbow, and it was interesting and and and. Francis would talk about his next picture and things that he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. And he didn't need all of these trucks and cars and stuff like that to, to go out to a location. It was very interesting to hear him talk. And of course, George would sit quietly most of the time until he really got his legs with Francis. And, and uh, Francis liked George. And the rest is history. You, you, when you look back at that group, and obviously, I know you know these guys as as friends, and and and, but I'm just curious, you know, just because this is the kind of conversations we have these days. When you look back at that kind of great group that kind of all came up together, the the you know Coppola, I know was a little bit ahead, but the Coppola, the Lucas, the Brian De Palmas, the they all kind of came up there at this, around the same time. The um, of course, Spielberg. Sorry, I don't mean to leave out Spielberg. Um, is there is there one in particular that you go, yeah, out of all of them, this was the one that the rest of them kind of looked to and and admired, and this this was the this was the one that that I think um, kind of rose above all the others. I think that would have been Francis at yeah. that time and for a number of years. It would have been Francis. And he was a you. He was he was primarily a writer who became a director. Isn't that right? Yeah. Oscar-winning writer before before he did Godfather. When you look at all the filmmakers that you have worked with, and it's such an impressive list. Whether it's Coppola, Lucas, Spielberg, Billy Wilder, who I think is one of the greatest writers of all time, um, Alfred Hitchcock, of course, uh, Robert Wise, so many. I know I'm leaving out a bunch. Um, that's why you should read the book, by the way, if you're listening to this, read the book. Uh, but, uh, uh, when you think about 
the art of directing, the art of filmmaking. What do you think that is uh, maybe one or two attributes? So you're you're talking to students now. You're, you're, you're po- people who are listening to this podcast. They want to learn how to become a great filmmaker. They want to learn um, what it means to 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 tell a great story. Um, what are you looking at the filmmakers that you worked with? What do you see as maybe one or two key essential things that maybe they all had? They were all really good at X or Y, and that's what led them to be great filmmakers, and that's what you should work on as an aspiring filmmaker. What what are some takeaways that you would have looking at all the greats that you worked with? Did they all have one or two things in common that you think is important to be a good director? Story, number one. Casting, number two. And the team that you put together without question in that order story is most important. So this is really good. So in that order, so let's talk story. What is it that you felt like when you look at all those guys, um, all those filmmakers, what is it that they knew about story that maybe some of us don't? Well, I think Spielberg is a little different. Spielberg somehow or another is able to pick what the audience wants. The others basically pick what they want, but make it a good picture designed for yeah. a target audience. That's really insightful. He is the, he is, he's the populist, right? Like, you know, um, Martin Scorsese and uh, Lucas and Coppola, these, these were all the guys that wanted to buck the system. They wanted to be anti-Hollywood yes. and Spielberg was like, yeah, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. Well, Spielberg is more studio, though. Mm-hmm. He's a studio guy. Yeah. Spielberg, of all the directors I've worked with, is, well, I should say he's 100 or 1,000% opposite of Peckinpah. But Spielberg could walk into, not that this happened, but Spielberg could walk into a set that he's never seen before and know exactly where he's going to put the camera and how he's going to direct his actors. He's wow. that good. Wow. While others need to look at that set ahead of time or a miniature or plan it out. Not, not that we do that to Stephen, but there are times where he just clicks very, very quickly. He knows where those actors are. He knows if the camera's going to move in or move back. He knows, he knows, he knows fast. The others might do the very same thing that Spielberg would have done, but not as fast. Peckinpah, it'd take him two hours to figure out to put the camera where, where, where your camera is to photograph you. Take him that long. <laughs> and he would he would make you stall. He would stall for time. Yes. He'd send you off to do an errand. Go find more goats. Yeah. <laughs> find more dirt. Green in the pasture. Something. Go get the art director that's an hour away here you are. We find yourself like you're in the middle of kind of the birth of, uh, I don't know what you would call it. Modern cinema or the blockbuster really. So you have, um, you and George and Francis kept missing each other. Like every time you'd go to, according to the book you wrote, uh, they wrote about how, um, every time they would go to try to, convince you to work with them on a project, you would always have another commitment. You talked about the importance of keeping commitments, which I think is a very um, part of, I think one of the things that drew people to you is your integrity. 
And so there were so many times when you weren't able to work with George uh, Lucas or, or um, Coppola on the projects that they were, were asking you to. But eventually, you and George get around to making the sequel to More American Graffiti, and, uh, or the sequel to American Graffiti called More American Graffiti. In that process, you kind of got into th- that system, which was which was up in um, Northern California, and it, it's fascinating to hear you describe the, the film community that was being developed up there. Can you talk a little bit about like such an interesting time uh, of just really young filmmakers doing some really fresh new things? Who was a part of that group, and and what was it like being a part of uh, that that little film community up there at that time? Well, it was a great film community. I mean, you had some sought-after directors, some great directors, and some wonderful producers. And look at One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, among others, was brainstormed up there. But the projects were not made up there. And it was the intent of Francis, and especially George, and that's why George built the ranch, to bring filmmakers, train filmmakers. And that was the first challenge I had on, on, on the American Graffiti sequel, to train the filmmakers. We only brought two people from Hollywood, two trained people from Hollywood. The rest had dabbled. Some of them had worked on the previous uh, graffiti. Some had worked on this and that, and that, but they weren't professionals. You know, they might work once a year, once every other year. So it was my job to really put together and work with the unions and establish ILM up there, move ILM up there from Van Nuys area and establish a film community. And we never did that. Why why is that? Why do you think it never actually came to fruition the way they um, had intended? Any guesses on that? Well, I think that, you know, the big thing that Francis did, or one of the big things that Francis did, besides films in Hollywood or on location, was The Godfathers. And most of that was New York. Yeah, East Coast. Yeah. And what did George do? He went off to England mm-hmm. for three Star Warses and a couple, three Indiana Joneses. And, you know. So they couldn't even commit to the area because they're off making their. Yeah. And you don't take people yeah. from California to England. Yeah. You'd be your director. That's it. So it died, and any of the people we were training moved on to Holly back back to Hollywood. Not back to Hollywood. Went to Hollywood or became independent filmmakers somewhere along the line. And it it never happened. George built the ranch for writers. George wanted writers to sit and meet with each other and talk over their projects, talk over their ideas. Have one writer. Has happiest script read by another writer that li- not live well. You could live at Skywalker Ranch, but you'd work at Skywalker Ranch, and that's why he had the gym there. That's why he had the swimming pool. That's why he had horseback riding. You you could it would be a community of writers, and that never happened. Wow, that happened, but nothing else happened. <laughs> and and I'm not saying you know may, maybe if that had happened, there wouldn't have been. The Star Wars is or Indiana Jones's. Yeah, right. A, a, diff, a completely different path. So you, so let's talk. Let's let's go there. We, you you basically end up finally because you weren't a part of the first Star Wars. You were working on another film at the time, and you talk about it extensively in the book. 
Um, but you're tracking with George because you guys are friends. He's coming. You, you guys are actually sitting and talking about it in post. You're in post on both of your films. You were on Roller Coaster, I believe. And yeah. um, um, and of course, you and your wife are friends with him and his wife. And and then eventually you start hearing about this other project that's being developed with Spielberg and and and, and Kasdan uh, that eventually comes with the title Raiders of the Lost Ark. So now you're a part of these conversations that are happening about this new Star Wars film. You've got more American graffiti that you're developing. And then now you've got this other project, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, there, there was a lot of creative energy. <laughs> there, was a, there was a lot of stuff going on uh, at, that, at that time. And you were uh, instrumental in all that. Can you talk just a little bit about the development um, of um, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Let's just start with that one. Yes. Well, let's go. Let's go back to uh, end of Star Wars days and the preparation for Empire Strikes Back, where George said, "Howard, you're going to be the producer on the third one. I want you in every single meeting that happens on Empire Strikes Back." During that time, we were talking about, and we started to develop another story called Radio Land Murders, which George did many years later. But he always told me he had a secret project. So while we were at, we had offices at Universal for a short time. And because we were in post on more American graffiti, George asked me to get a projection room and view as many serials, old serials as possible. Now this is, this is, 19, this is way back. This is long before I even knew the name Raider, <laughs> an Indiana Jones picture. And so we'd see these serials. And sometimes friends of Lucas, of us, would come in. You might have John Milius there. And sometimes you'd see two episodes. Sometimes you'd see all 12 or 13 episodes of a particular serial. Uh, George would see some of them, not all of them, because he was very busy uh, preparing Empire or getting the script done. And we'd make notes. And out of that is where Raiders of the Lost Ark came from. And some of the cliffhangers in Raiders are very similar to the cliffhangers in these films that we saw. And as a kid growing up, I was too young to go to the theater to see it, but I had have all of those on VHS. When I say all of those, maybe, maybe 30 of them on VHS. So I was used to them. So it was no surprise. I mean, it, I was there. And then um, uh, Larry Kasdan was hired based on his performance on Empire Strikes Back. Stephen, we wanted, and we talked to Stephen about it, but Stephen always has so many projects, we really weren't sure, and he wasn't committed until almost a month, two months before we started production, that Stephen was going to direct. In fact, at one time, George asked me to start looking for another director because we weren't sure that Stephen was going to take on the challenge. I, like I said, he was so busy with so many other projects. So yes, uh, it was it was Stephen and and Larry and George that put together the screenplay, and then uh, I scouted uh, 
I was given the first draft and I scouted Egypt and came back and said, Egypt is the wrong place to shoot. And George said, why don't you think about Tunisia? So that was another scout. And um, creatively, there were some things in the original draft, in the original drafts. The first draft was very close to the finished draft with the exception if you recall in the submarine, Harrison boards the submarine and it heads for an island. And in the script, the submarine submerges and heads for this volcanic island and a big underwater door opens right out of a cereal and the submarine goes through and it comes to the inside of this hollow volcano and the rest of the movie takes place the opening of the arc and i'm reading this and i said this is this is right out of Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea <laughs> and one of them says i haven't seen that movie in a long time i said you <laughs> you better see that it changed yeah. and there were things like that where you had to make changes from the original you yeah. know so many things you look around and they've been done before yeah. Well, when I when I was in uh, scouting in in Egypt at Abu Simbel, uh, is a temple that was raised out of the water when the Aswan Dam was built. Uh, it was raised by the Germans, French, and Americans, like sixty feet up, and reconstructed. And this is when you see it. I mean, you've seen it in pictures. It has four giant statues of Ramses, and you go in. And you go in about 200 feet, and there are four life-size statues of Pharaoh sitting there, one of which is Ramsey. It was tunneled in. It's one of the temples that was built into the side of the mountain. And it was built so on the solstice, the day of the solstice, the sun came down, bounced across the Nile River, and lit the one statue of Ramsey, similar to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Similar to, similar to um, another movie, uh, Incas that that I pointed out. Another movie, uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth, yes. where the sun at a certain time. Yes. So what's new, folks? It's just how you handle it and how you tweak it and how you change it to make it new and interesting. I love that. You. So one of the things that you are known for for Raiders of the Lost Ark fans, Indiana Jones fans is you are the guy that really pushed for Harrison Ford. You you were advocating. That's kind of part of the legend, right? And kind of talk about that a little bit. So Lucas was, he was, I don't want to say obsessed, but he was all he was all in on Tom Selleck, right? Like that was the, or, or was it Spielberg? Was, was, Spiel, was Spielberg sold on Selleck as well? Yeah. Yes. So, so they were both sold. And was that because of Magnum PI? Was, was, was Magnum PI on at the time or something? I can't remember, but um, Magnum PI had shot its pilot. Okay. okay. Giant scene. And I can only say good things about Tom Selleck. However, he wasn't the talented actor in that particular pilot that he is today or was shortly thereafter. Yeah. And I, I just could not see it. And, and Stephen and George, I don't believe ever saw the pilot. 
And I, I just didn't see it. Sid Gannis thought he was the guy. A lot of the Lucasfilm key people said he was the guy. I just, I just saw Harrison Ford and kept saying Harrison Ford. The challenge was that we couldn't get Salick. Everybody knows that story. Couldn't get Tom Selleck. So who are you going to get? So we start interviewing many on tape. Um, uh, Stephen, very seldom George would be there. Uh, all the young, talented actors of the day. Dozens and dozens of them. And it always came back to Harrison Ford for me. And it wasn't until almost the last minute that we cast Harrison Ford. Because yeah, like how, how close was, how close, I can't remember what it was said, but it was fairly close to production, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like four weeks, something like that. Yeah, which for a film like that is, you know, that's pretty, it's cutting it close. Or, well, it was budgeted at 20 million. That was a decent sized budget at the time. No, uh, Blues Brothers and, and 1941 and some of those movies certainly cost more than that. But we were limited to 20 million, not a penny over. So we come to Return of the Jedi, and uh, you know you you were not a part of Star uh, the first Star Wars. Um, you were a part of meetings and conversations and everything with with uh, Empire, but but George had this thing where he was delineating everyone's kind of roles, and you were kind of non Star Wars films, and you kind of did Raiders, and you were working on the other projects and things like that, but. With Jedi, he wanted you on it. It was a part of it. Um, that must have been, at that point, all the hoopla, everything, right? Everybody's all in, the money, the studios. When Jedi comes around, the stakes must have gone through the roof. And I'm just curious, like, did you guys feel that pressure? Was there ever a thing where we're no longer just kids just out here making stuff, but like now our movies have made gobs of money. People have a higher level expectation. On top of that, we're finishing a trilogy. Um, when you would sit in those early meetings for Jedi, was there a, um, was there a sense that, um, that the stakes had been raised higher? Did you guys feel any kind of, kind of different level of pressure, if you will? Yeah, there, there is a lot of pressure, and I think it's there's more pressure on high-budget films, for me, high-budget films, than there are on low-budget films. And they're harder to make, not easier, because they're, you have more money to spend. Uh, we, we also had the challenge of making it as good as the first two. You can't go downhill. You can't make it a mess. You can't destroy what George had worked so hard at that time for about eight and a half years. We also had the challenge of the first, the first three trilogy, the trilogy was really act one, act two, and act three. And act three was the end. Yes, there were rumors about prequel sequels and all of that. When I first joined Lucasfilm, there were rumors about 12. George talked about doing nine. Episode one, two, and three was World War One, where the effects would be more primitive than four, five, and six. Well, that never happened. It was the reverse. <laughs> the opposite happened there. Yeah. And seven, eight, nine would be World War Three. That's the way he described it to me way, way in the beginning. But but episode six, Je Jedi, 
was the end. We had to end that story. Kirshner, with the middle one, Empire, that's where a lot of wonderful things can happen. And that's where relationships are built and camaraderie is built and story is built. Star Wars is an introduction. And so those are the challenges. It's just not going off and making another film. Maybe today, maybe today is that way. But for us, the trilogy was the important one, the first, first four, five, and six. And what was the budget you ended up? That, that was the biggest budget at the time, right? What was the budget on? 34. 30, okay. That's and was it. that the biggest budget you had ever worked on? Yes. Yeah. The second was, the second was about the same. And the first one was a little over 10. But you're also dealing with the fluctuation in the pound. Yeah, yeah. With Star Wars, uh, they were able to it, 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 the the pound fluctuated where they were able to pull it off at ten and a half. Otherwise, I think it was going to be thirteen or something like that. With Empire and Jedi, the pound was really moving up. But with Jedi, we locked it in by pre-buying uh, pounds. So we knew exactly what that picture was going to, well, you didn't know how, if you were going to go over or under, but you knew what the pound was going to cost. There are so many wonderful artisans and craftsmen that have come out of the Star Wars universe. It really is a, a um, when you go back and you look, the Joe Johnsons, the Ralph McQuarries, there's like, there's the, 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 um, uh, oh man, I'm so sorry. I'm forgetting the sound engineer, the legendary sound engineer, uh, Bert, uh, Ben Burt. Ben Burt. Like, there's so many just amazing um, filmmakers uh, in their own right, and just um, the the cre- talk. Can you just talk a little bit about just the creative synergy of being on a project like that when you're around such master craftsmen and things like that? Your role as a producer. I mean, you are your your role is basically to just clear the playing field to make sure everyone has a chance to be their best, right? Isn't, isn't that essentially what you're what you're doing? You're you're the helping make sure that all these amazing talents are able to do their very best, take out all whatever's going to limit them from that. Yeah, basically, you let them go when they ask for certain things. Uh, if it's in reason, you have to give it. And George, fortunately, has trained some of the best and has hired some of the best. Look at Dennis Muren. He has nine, seven, nine Academy Awards. Ben Burt has a handful of Academy Awards. And these are the people you hire and you let run. I mean, you guide them, you talk to them, you help them. But it's not a one-man show. It may be a one-man show who created it. And I'm taking nothing away from George because he's brilliant. But if you don't have the men behind you, the men and women behind you, the talent behind you, what are you going to get? You're not going to get what we gave the audience. These are talented people who also are in love with their work and what they're doing. And that's important. you got to love what you want to do. I mean, uh, Dennis Murin and these people dreamed all their life that they could do visual effects or be, be in be filmmakers in one respect or another. Ben Burke started right out of USC. But it was his talent and his love for what he was doing that made it so special. 
And then you bring along somebody like Johnny Williams, the Mozart of today. Yep. And he does your score. Yeah. He's the best. You know, when people, when you, when people read this book and they pick up this biography and they read all these stories about, you know, all the films you worked on, all the projects you were a part of, all the filmmakers you uh, worked with, what do you want them to walk away with? What do you, what do you, what are you wanting them to come away with after reading this book and, and, and learning about your, your journey as a filmmaker? Well, it's very subtle, but one of the main reasons why I wanted the book was for young potential filmmakers and others to understand what our industry was all about, the good and the bad. But I hope in it, people see that you have to have a dream and you have to have a goal and you have to work hard at it and be honest about it and work hard, very, very hard. The, the other, uh, other thing is you can't start at the top. My story is about me starting as a trainee for two years with very little pay, the lowest, the lowest rank. Now, I'm not suggesting you start at the bottom. Start somewhere, but to start at the top, you may have one or two successes, but you're going to fail eventually because you don't know how to make a film. And when I say you don't know how to make a film, you don't know what the filmmakers that you have hired do. You don't know what the prop maker does. You don't know what the special effects guy, I'm talking about the special effects, set special effects, or the customer, or what the customer has to go through, how early that customer has to get up in the morning and make changes, or the electricians, or the grips, or even the drivers. And if you do, if you haven't started, if you haven't seen how the production designer creates a set, and how you go in there and you make changes and say, I don't need these three walls. I only want one wall or I only want two walls. Or you don't need to build it 14 feet high because I'll never see it. If you haven't gone through that, you're wasting a lot of money, a lot of time, and, and may fail. And that's what I wanted to say in this book. I started at the bottom. You don't need to start at the bottom, but you ha- can't start at the top and really be successful and know what a filmmaker does. Wow. There's, there's a lot of wisdom in that, Howard. There's a lot of, of wisdom in that. I, I want to thank you personally um, just for your kindness and graciousness. You've always been so um, so good to act one and um, and just to so many people in the business, you've been um, just a joy um, to so many people. And I think it comes across in the book how um, you always found a way to win people over as best you could um, in difficult situations, on difficult productions. You always tried to just have be a man of integrity and a man of conviction and uh, filled with joy. And I just think it's it's made a difference. And so um, thank you. Thank you for today. And thank you for this book. And uh, thank you for your career and, and your example. Um, I just want to remind people again, they can pick up this book. It's on Amazon, of course, as well as any um, uh, anywhere you uh, you purchase books. It's called Howard Kazanjian, A Producer's Life. Uh, it's a biography. It came out 
um, uh, just a couple months ago, right, Howard? And it's, uh, I've, I've read it. It's a fantastic book. It would be a fantastic gift for the filmmaker in your life or just someone who just likes to hear good stories because Howard, Howard tells a lot of great stories. Um, Howard, God bless you. I tried. <laughs> you did. You tried. and used a good... God bless you, my friend. I, we always like to close our podcast by um, praying for our guests. Would you allow me to pray for you? Please. That's it. Heavenly Father, I just uh, want to stop and pause and reflect and just thank you. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to speak to Howard. And I just want to thank you for Howard. Thank you for just the testimony of his life and his career. Um, thank you for uh, the example that he has led. Thank you, God, for using Howard in so many different ways, um, not only in this business, but just in with the lives of the people around him. Um, God, thank you for uh, just the chance to be able to spend some time with him today and talk about all these stories. And God, I just pray just a blessing upon Howard and his family. Just pray um, that you would continue to just um, remind him each and every day of how much he is loved by you and uh, just fill him with your presence. And we just thank you for this time. And we pray this in Jesus name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Act One podcast. Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood, Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. The Act One program is a division of Master Media International. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. And to learn more about the work of Master Media, go to mastermedia.com.